You're, you're listening to the best of Living Wealthy Radio with Teresa Kuhn. Be sure to catch our show live every Sunday on 1370 AM Austin. For information, archives, and upcoming presentations, visit our website at www.livingwealthyradio.com. Good Sunday, Austin. Welcome to Living Wealthy Radio with your host, Teresa Kuhn. Good afternoon. You are listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard every Sunday at noon here on Talk Radio, 1370 AM, streaming live at talk1370.com. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. A sacred cow is an idea, custom, or institution that is unreasonably held to be above criticism. What are some sacred cows you can think of? Well, conventional financial planning is a huge one for me. From the way we are taught to save for retirement to how we send our kids to college, there are many sacred cows when it comes to money and wealth creation. Our guest today, Charles Hugh Smith, is a modern Renaissance man, a blogger, author, TV and radio commentator, fitness, health, and lifestyle expert. Oh, my gosh and also vocal proponent of America's return to self-sufficiency and sustainability. His blog, Of Two Minds, was named one of the most influential alternative financial sites by CNBC. And Of Two Minds covers an eclectic assortment of topics, including personal finance, energy, education, and genetically modified food. He's written many books dissecting sacred cows, including Why Things Are Falling Apart and What We Can Do About It, Resistance, Revolution, and Liberation, A Model for Positive Change, Survival Plus, Structuring Prosperity for Yourself and the Nation, and An Unconventional Guide to Investing in Troubled Times. His most recent book, The Nearly Free University and the Emerging Economy, The Revolution in Higher Education, tackles one of America's most sacred cows, the idea that everyone needs to take on debt and get a college education. And Charles, I could not agree with you more as a financial uh, advisor and, and wealth and retirement income strategist. I see my clients every single day uh, take on this huge amount of debt for their children and see their children's taking a huge amount of debt just for that sacred four college degree, where have we gone, like wrong? Well, Teresa, I think that's an excellent question, and I think we can start with um, the the foundation of our current educational system has just fallen completely behind um, our technology. When we think of universities uh, stretching back into the you know medieval and Renaissance eras, they were all based on a, a tremendous scarcity of knowledge and printed material. You know, books were very expensive, and if you wanted to learn something, there were very few opportunities. And so the universities uh, were based on libraries where there were scarce books and scarce experts who you'd have to gather in one spot to hear their lectures. And now with uh, the internet and um, online courses, uh, that whole model is just really obsolete. You know, you make a really good point. 
so you would think that the cost of education would go down because there's so much available information and education out there, but the opposite is happening every single day. The cost of education is going up and not down. Right, and that's uh, another point that I think uh, we we tend to overlook is that the current system is based on what I call artificial scarcity. In other words, there's really no constraint on the number of people who could take uh, college classes um, online and earn a credential or degree. But the current system creates an artificial scarcity, like you have to apply and a lot of people get rejected. And then, and so with a scarcity, then they're able to, to push the price above what the market would normally allow. And so this is what I call like cartel pricing. And of course, that's common in, in um, economies around the world when, when one or two companies uh, dominate a market, then then they can charge um, a price that's way above what the price would be if there was competition. So what I'm sort of proposing as a solution is let technology uh, guide us uh, to make college affordable and let's have some real competition uh, instead of the sort of fake competition we have between colleges that charge you know, $29,000 per year tuition and $32,000. You know, that's not real competition. Is is the cost really that much uh, for a university? Right? Are they really um, for someone to go to school? Is it is it realistic to think that their uh, the cost to educate that student is thirty thousand a year, or twenty thousand a year, or forty thousand a year? Yeah, Teresa. The statistics uh, vary, of course, depending on if you go to a private university or a state uh, university. And of course, the state um, institutions will be cheaper, but the Average cost for a four-year bachelor's degree is running somewhere between eighty-nine thousand and one hundred and twenty thousand, on average, and of course that um, includes living expenses. Which we, um, if you live at home, of course, and attend a state university, your costs will be considerably cheaper than if you go to an out-of-state school and and pay full uh, private tuition. But the costs have. Um, on average, the cost of tuition and student fees has risen 1,100% since 1980. So that's roughly, in a, roughly 30 years, the costs have skyrocketed over 1,000%, where the cost of buying a new car has risen 95%. So, you, you know, as, as one example, so you can see that the college uh, fees and tuition have, have risen roughly 10 or 11 times more than the rest of the economy. But is it based on the college having to, uh, costing more from the college perspective to educate a student, or is it just inflated because of, you know, financial aid and there being money available for students to pay the colleges and the cartel, the concept of the cartel with the universities getting together and um, not, not overtly, but, um, you know, uh, charging pretty much the same as everybody else. I think we can we can pinpoint one cause, which is that when the money is available for any particular purpose uh, in unlimited quantities, then the price will rise. And with the advent of student loans, uh, then there's basically an unlimited amount of money that um, is being diverted to higher education in the form of student loans, which now total over $1 trillion. 
And so uh, if, if we had to pay cash only, if there were no student loans, then we can imagine what would happen to price. Price would collapse along with a lot of really high-priced institutions that weren't really providing a good product. And, and that's the other aspect of this that's really troubling is um, the current system of higher education is not providing a quality product. And uh, I know that's, a, a, that's an astonishing claim, perhaps, but um, one of the largest uh, studies of college students and, and, um, and their academic achievements uh, was called Academically Adrift. And it found that a full third of all college students gained no critical thinking skills hmm. at all. And another third had marginal um, improvements in the skills that, that we need in, in the current economy. So it seems fairly obvious that the current system is failing roughly two-thirds of everybody that goes to college. So on top of, of soaring costs, the quality or viability of the educational product they're providing is, has uh, declined. Wow, that's uh, that's very interesting. Two thirds of those that go to college and uh, take on a tremendous amount of debt, their critical thinking skills has not improved or has improved just marginally. Right, and so um, there's been quite a bit of of study, and in fact, an explosion of study of of how well online uh, courses work. And um, the, the catchphrase um, out there now is MOOC, which is an, an acronym, M-O-O-C, which is Massively Open Online Courses. And so a lot of, um, of higher education colleges, uh, both state and, and uh, private, they're starting to work these into their um, curriculum because they're so effective. And actually students learn better and learn more material uh, by doing an online course than they do in, in a lecture. And so, and of course, the cost is essentially zero. It's the cost of the bandwidth, which is almost zero. But ironically, perhaps, um, for those of us on the outside, the, the current system is charging the same money for this essentially free course as they do for the lecture course with a classroom and a high-cost high professor or instructor and so on. So the model is um, is nearly free to deliver, but the current institutions are charging the same old price, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for a degree, even if you earn it online. What about the online alternatives that are promising degrees but at a lower cost? That is um, one of the more uh, hopeful signs is that some institutions are breaking um, rank, so to speak, with their um, – the uh, institutions of higher learning in general and charging a price that's that's more in line with the actual delivery price of the product. And uh, one of the examples that's gotten quite a bit of, um, of publicity is, I believe it's the, uh, the uh, Georgia Tech has uh, come out with a master's degree in computer science program, which is entirely online, and I believe they're charging $6,700, or it might be $8,700, um, but less than $10,000 for the entire master's degree program. And the competition, so to speak, if you if you attend um, a classroom equivalent, it's in the tens of thousands. So that's that's a, that's kind of a, a 
a sign of where we could go. And it may very well be that the delivery cost of the entire program, including testing and everything, might be more like $4,000. And so what I'm looking at is the potential to drop the cost of, of a college education by an order of a mag, uh, an order of magnitude, like by, by tenfold. In other words, a if it costs $10,000 now for a semester, it should cost 1000 If the whole degree program costs 100000 it should cost 10000 And so um, the, the Georgia Tech program is showing that this is, this is not just fantasy. It's, it's um, a real possibility. So if a student were to get uh, a master's degree online through Georgia Tech or with any one of these other universities that may be accredited, um, is there a stigma attached to that degree when they go to find a job? Well, that's part of the developing um, sort of ethos of, of this online course alternative, um, Teresa, that, and that's, that's still an open question. If the program is properly organized and the student is properly uh, educated on the material and properly tested, I don't see any reason why there would be a stigma. Um, and so that sort of raises another critical point in, in the future of higher education, which is I think we need to move to a system that accredits the student, not the college. Mm. And as it is now, um, the study that we mentioned uh, academically adrift, it's clear that just accumulating credits in some college, be it um, a physical campus or an online university, it doesn't really tell a potential employer or collaborator whether you've actually mastered the material. And so we need to go to a system that's common in the professions, like, um, say, being an attorney or an architect, you, you typically get your degree, but then you have to pass a professional test to actually um, gain the right to practice in the real world. Why not do that for every student in every field? And that's certainly, uh, again, very possible with the um, explosion of online software. Everyone could be tested in their field of study and show potential employers, hey, I really know this stuff. That's an interesting concept. Uh, instead of accrediting the universities, accredit the, the students. And in many professions, like accountancy and, and lawyers and doctors, they have to be, you know, they have to pass um, their boards or have to pass their exams. And, you know, regardless of where they went to school, at least they're in line with their peers. Right. And that raises another point um, that, you know, uh, in terms of our peers, is, as you know, and I know you've covered in previous shows, um, the the U.S. economy is struggling with income disparity. That we're 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 finding that a lot of the jobs that are available are lower pay than they were a generation ago, and the top performers in various fields are are earning way more than they used to a generation ago. And so, I think that we need to tie in reforming higher education with income disparity. And if we make college, if we keep college being basically unaffordable and extremely expensive, where you have to become a debt surf for like 10, 20 years as you slog away paying down tens of thousands of dollars of debt, that's actually increasing income disparity greatly because it's limiting the opportunity to go to college and it's making it so expensive that um, lower income students it's like they really can't 
pay this thing off um, if they get a, a conventional job at a conventional pay scale. So in the nearly free university model, the university costs drop to you know five ten thousand dollars for the entire degree, and so you don't need student debt necessarily. And then since the student is tested directly, then you can go to potential employers and say, "See, I really have evidence that I know this stuff." And so I think I think that um, reforming higher education is one really solid way to start addressing the root causes of income. Dis, uh, disparity. So the whole question of, you know, how did we get to this point, right? It, to me, there's so many different um, areas of our economy and, and finance and our culture today that uh, you mentioned the word serfdom, right? You know, when these kids graduate from college, they've got tens of thousands of dollars in debt. They are serfs, right? They are um, they've got a master, and a ma- the master is who they owe the debt to. Uh, you know, many of their uh, of these professions, their licenses, are linked to whether they pay their debt or not. So, if they default on their debt, um, their credit is ruined. They can't file for bankruptcy and erase that debt. Um, some professions they can't get their license to practice their profession. Right, so they really are slaves to the master. Um, but at the same time, you know, the economy is down. The, we've got employers today that are laying off massive amount of employees because of Obamacare. Um, we, we've got like this perfect storm of things happening in the economy that if I was a student graduating from college with, you know, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 worth of debt, I, I would be pretty, pretty upset. Yes, and I think that uh, we may be seeing the first sort of tentative signs of the younger generation uh, starting to rebel um, at this system. And unfortunately, the choices at the moment are not are not good. In other words, we don't yet have a fully online system that accredits the student. Um, that's still um, a dream, if you will. What we have is a cartel system that charges you a huge fortune for a nearly worthless or often worthless degree. And so students uh, have this sort of dreadful choice where they can um, they can avoid college and decide to learn something that's productive in the real economy and uh, master that and then go seek an employer who will give them a chance. And um, this is not as uncommon as, as maybe we're led to believe. Um, and, for example, you know, Google is a company that many um, young, you know, hotshots in technology would love to work for. And it turns out that um, many of the teams at Google, are 15% of the people have zero college experience. Zero. They didn't attend part-time. They didn't take some classes. Zero. And this, uh, this as results from Google studying the productivity and um, collaborative abilities of, of people that did really well in academic studies. You know, they graduated with 4.0 or honors and all that stuff. Well, Google found that the people they hired with all the – that had succeeded in, in, acad- in academic studies – they were um, no better employees in terms of productivity than people with no college. And so as a result, Google started to hire people with no college. 
as long as they knew their stuff, as long as they could solve the problems Google needed solving. So that is, of course, um, a heresy in the current system that requires everyone to get a four-year bachelor's degree to even get in the door. But I think it goes to show that, that the really enlightened employers are starting to move away from looking at college degrees as the essential component of productivity. And they're starting to look at, like, what does the person really know how to do? So why do you think our, our culture is so um, is willing, with all the financial education that's out there, right, and there's tons of it, and a lot of it is based on, hey, don't get into debt, right? But we make the exception with college. With college, it's okay to you know, have financial aid and, and get student loans and the kids are getting the student loans and the parents are getting student loans. Um, is it because our parents or our thinking is this is the only way to have success? This is the only way for you to have, you know, um, Johnny, for you to have, you know, a better life than what we as parents had? Is that thinking behind that, Dad? I think so, Teresa. And I think that, uh, that the post-war history uh supports that that basis and so it's very difficult for us as a culture to realize that what worked from 1945 the end of world war ii to say the early 90s or maybe even mid 90s that that 50-year period that what worked then no longer works now in other words in a more entrepreneurial economy one that requires critical thinking and the ability to um, be flexible and learn new skills all the time, that just going to college and, and getting a degree is no longer enough. And uh, but, but we have like decades of experience where just getting a bachelor's degree got you into um, the opportunity to apply to all kinds of much better paying jobs than if you only had a high school diploma. And so it's very difficult for us to let go of that model that it seemed to work so well. But what's changed is 40% of the workforce now has a college degree. Back, uh, say, when I was a college student in the 70s, it was more like 20 25%. So there's, again, basic, basic economics, supply and demand. If there's scarcity, then, then you can charge a higher premium, the, the higher price. If there's an abundance and overabundance, then the price drops. And so that's the same thing that's at work in the labor force. The number of people with college degrees, there's an abundance. There's a no shortage of people with college degrees. Even PhDs are in oversupply. So the, the value that's paid to that labor will, will drop just like any other um, you know, economic situation. So the, the value of a college degree has plummeted as as half the population attends college now. So for me, I've got a 17-year-old who, you know, I know everything we're talking about. I understand it. I recognize it from an intellectual level. But I also take that statistic, 40% of the workforce, right, has college degrees. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I counsel my son, I think to myself, well, I want him to have every advantage out there. And if he's one of the 60% that doesn't have a college degree, then he's at a disadvantage. Yes. So help me with my conflict. Help me with my thinking. Do you understand where I'm coming from? 
Right. And so, and I think that that's the same situation that every parent in America faces. And I think that um, we we have, we don't have good choices right now. Like I said, we don't yet have a system that allows us to get an education for four or $5,000 for a degree instead of 40, 50, 100. But I think we need to draw a distinction between the employers in, in what I call the emerging economy, the, the parts of the economy that are growing fast, which is like digital software and the implementation of digital software in every industry in America, and the sort of conventional industries like, say, insurance um, or banking or um, retail where the human resources departments are still tied into, like, you know, the sort of what I call the passport stamp. You know, mm-hmm. did you get your passport stamp, i.e. your four-year college degree? So given that reality, I, th- I would, I recommend to young people that they that they um, pursue a dual track. And this, of course, means you have to work twice as hard. Um, and, but as somebody who did exactly what I'm proposing, um, I found it um, exciting. I didn't find it burdensome to basically pursue two different tracks at the same time. One track, get get as many credits as you can at a local state school. You can start at the community college, get, you know, 60 credits or two years worth of credit for a relatively low cost, especially if you live at home or with a relative. Then transfer to, a again, a state school and where the tuition is more like six to, you know, 7,000 a semester instead of, you know, 10 or 20. And if you... Um, the dual track is then you 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 choose a profession that you're going to um, work in that's growing in the real economy, and that can be anything from air conditioning and heating, which is a constant, to agriculture, to oil services. You know, there's a ton of industries that are still doing well in the U.S. because they provide you know basic fundamental things um, to the population, and then try to get a job, no matter how lowly, in that industry, and then you can. If you can work in summers, you're getting valuable experience and you're saving money so you don't really have to borrow. And so you're, you're, you're basically doing what you would do if you, if you had a college degree, but you're not waiting for the degree. Because when you get the degree, that doesn't really give you much in today's world. you still got to go out and find mentors, find positions, and get job experience. And that's the hard part. Getting a four-year degree is easy compared to you know, actually getting a job in the field you want to excel in. Our guest today, Charles Hugh Smith, speaking on uh, Sacred Cow of College and how to pay for it. This is Teresa Kuhn with Living Wealthy Radio. We'll be right back. Living Wealthy Radio. Visit Teresa's team online at livingwealthyradio.com, 1-800-382-0830 now. Call 1-800-382-0830. Welcome back, Austin, to Living Wealthy Radio with Teresa Kuhn. Good afternoon. You are listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard every Sunday at noon here on Talk Radio, 1370 a.m., Our system is broken, and finally more and more people are questioning why we have been living according to sacred cows, these conventional financial wisdom that ultimately fails us. 
We've got a new economy today. Today, our reality is very different than it was decades ago. So why are we so afraid to question and go against the grain? Is it too late to fix what's going on today? Um, Charles Hugh Smith discussing with us um, college. And Charles, I'll say what I think about college. And I've got all sorts of degrees and um, believe in education, believe in learning, believe so much in critical thinking skills. But when I see the reality with my clients and their kids and the, the amount of debt, it's a mortgage that they've got on their shoulders uh, and, and looking at an economy that's not offering positions and jobs that they expected, right? Um, I think the whole system is really a scam. Am I wrong? No, I think you're absolutely right. And as as you say, with a sacred cow institution, people are appalled uh, when the truth is stated baldly. <laughs> but the higher education system has become a scam. And I think we we need to mention the role of the federal government in this. And, of course, to your listeners, it will be no surprise that one thread of, of the scam runs back to the government and it's not a slam on all government or all government programs, but um, the federal government's role in this scam is huge. And, and we can look at the student loan uh, growth as the, as the main driver of these absurd costs. So who's backing all these student loans? Ultimately, it's the federal government. The government. Yeah. And, and before we talk about that, one, one really great example um, – I don't know if you heard that there were law school graduates that were suing their law schools for overinflating job opportunities. Did you hear of that? This was several I years did. ago. Yeah, interesting. And so that to me when I when that came out several years ago, I thought how appropriate, right? We've got all these law schools with all these um students that you know, law school is very expensive. It's 3 years. Uh, and law school does a great job at promoting the profession and promoting employment opportunities, right? I mean, I am graduated from law school. I practice law. I, I recognized this many, many years ago when I went to school. And many of these graduates have over $100,000 in loans. And so to have a good-paying job, you know, it justifies the loans, right? And so law school does a great job at promoting the employment opportunities, well, this group of law students, um, I think it was uh, at the school in California, I don't want to say because I, I'm going um, by memory, but I, I think there were actually many schools where the students stood up and said, all right, this is a scam. We've got our degrees. We've got our debt. We can't find jobs. And I think you're right regarding the government. The government has made the money too easy for these students to borrow, and they're complicit, if not responsible, for a lot of the a lot of this problem. Yeah, and the numbers are just staggering, uh, Teresa. It's it's um, I, I have a chart on my website that's drawn directly from the Federal Reserve um, in in St. Louis, which which publishes some um, hundreds of charts of of various economic indicators, and the federal direct loans 
to students from the federal government have skyrocketed from, say, $100 billion to $600 billion in a few years. In other words, as student defaults are rising, what the federal government is doing is it's becoming the lender of last resort to keep the current system afloat. And, you know, what's really scandalous uh, is, um, well, you mentioned one of the scandalous features, which is inflating the the supposed job opportunities from from getting a degree. And um, the other inflated uh, number is the number of, of our graduates who've, um, who have a job now. That's another thing that, this, that many schools will promote the idea that, oh, you know, 98% of our graduates, you know, have jobs. But what they don't uh, break out is whether the person that's got a job, whether they're underemployed. So you have a, a sort of brewing scandal where people with PhDs supposedly have a very low um, unemployment rate, but how many of them are working in positions that required a PhD? It turns out that number is a lot lower, and there's a huge um, oversupply of, of people with PhDs in a number of fields. So getting a law degree that used to be 20 years ago, you'd get a guaranteed job offer. Now, um, I've read numbers that said up to 40% of law graduates are still unemployed a year after they graduated with a law degree. And those that do take jobs are taking jobs where they're paying almost minimum wage, a little above minimum wage. And they've got these huge student loans that they can't pay with what they're making. Um, and there was another statistic I read, uh, and I'm going to make up the number because I can't remember exactly, but there are like 75,000 theater art graduates a year. Well, are there 75,000 new jobs available for these graduates every year? I don't know a whole lot about theater arts, but I've got to say, probably not. You know, that's a, that's an excellent point, Teresa, that when we graduate tens of thousands of people in, in various fields, we do not automatically create positions in that field. And, and it's not just uh, theater arts, but you can say the same thing about computer science or uh, chemistry. You know, even the hard sciences have an oversupply now of people with masters and PhDs. So, what do you recommend to a student today? Um, do you have kids? No, I don't. I only have uh, you know niece, nephew, and um, all my friends' kids. <laughs> okay. Well, what what do you recommend if you had a niece or nephew? who was uh, a junior in college, I've, uh, or junior in high school. I've got a junior. I've got a 17-year-old son, right? Um, and I'm completely conflicted as to, you know, how to guide him. I'm all about community college. Uh, I'm all, you know, at one point in my life I was a snob about schools. I no longer am. I see it for what it is, right? So I'm I'm on the track where, hey, community college, you know, get your first two years really cheap, and then you can go to a state school and get that diploma, get that piece of paper, right? At least you'll be in line with the 40%, and we're not paying tens of thousands of dollars. I'd rather give them a check to go start a business than give it to a university, right? But what would you recommend to, to you know, your nephew who's junior in high school? Right. Well, I think um, it's interesting. As just as a starting point, you mentioned it, um, funding an entrepreneurial, uh, you know, creating your own job with the same money that that would have been squandered on a essentially useless degree. 
And I believe there was um, quite a bit of media coverage about um, one of the Silicon Valley uh, tech guys who did exactly that. He was uh, recruiting high school students and saying, I will, I will fund your first business mm. to the tune of $50,000 instead of, instead of you going to college. Just start your business right now. And so I think that uh, that may be extreme for most people, but I think that the point is, is valid, which is we are in a very entrepreneurial economy where... You think? I, well, I think that the opportunities for entrepreneurism are, are rising because of the, the web, the Internet, and um, the explosion of, of really powerful tools like 3D printing in terms of fabrication of, of parts and, and, um, and also just the ability to reach customers, uh, potential customers through the web. So that's another... F- f- complete and total failure of our current system is teaching the rudimentary fundamentals of entrepreneurism. And I and I've um you know I've started a number of businesses, everything from I've been a builder and I do have a, a, a bachelor's degree in, in, in philosophy. But I basically earned that degree while I was working as a carpenter. And of course you have to juggle your schedule and you need an employer who um, will give you a little flexibility. Um, and you have to work like six, seven days a week, um, but it, it is possible. And of course, the more challenging the economy, the the harder we have to work, all of us. And so, what I would suggest to my nephew is, you know, f- choose a field where that's that's actually growing in the real economy. And and theater arts probably isn't going to make the cut. And my degree is in philosophy. Okay, there's. <laughs> The job growth there, sorry, not there. If you want to get that degree, that's fine, but consider it a side project to your your fundamental project, which is mastering something that's useful in the real economy, solving somebody's problem. That's what we get paid for. So that's what I would say, dual track. Find out what you want to do. um, Learn and master the skills that allow you to problem solve and then go ahead and go to classes um, and earn credits kind of as a side project. Well, I actually love philosophy degrees because it, it teaches you to think, and we need critical thinking skills. But you're right, the practical application of, you know, having um, you put on your resume that you've got a philosophy degree, that's not one that most employers would say, oh, I've got a job for him, right? Exactly. Um, so that's that's the other part of it. So... The skills for the future, um, technical, engineering, finance, what do you think? All of the above, and I think that the the one real skill that we, I think the current system just sort of assumes that we, we gain through osmosis or, or by magic is learning how to learn. And, and we all go, oh, well, we all know how to learn. You know, you don't have to really learn how to learn. We all know that because we're curious animals and our brains are wired to learn. Well, that's true. But nonetheless, um, the the key feature of the what I call the emerging economy, the, the economy that's the future, is we constantly have to keep learning within our fields. And, um, you know, the old system was based on you get a college degree in a field and there's not really going to be a whole lot of change in that field because change was at a slower pace in the, in, in the decades uh, gone by. 
And so you might have to take a little bit of professional coursework here and there, but that economy is gone. I mean, except for a few professions such as like maybe firefighters, uh, police officers, and certain other government functions where this, this, the, the job and the, the work is roughly the same as it was 20 years ago. Even in those fields, technology is advancing rapidly that somebody in those jobs has to keep up with, um, with the advancements in their field. Well, outside of those sort of government sectors, many of us have to switch entire professions every few years, or we have to learn a whole new body of knowledge. And so that's really the, the, um, the critical thinking and the ability to learn entire new fields in depth. Those are the skills that everybody needs going forward. You know, you mentioned, um, you know, as if you go to college, you know, ideally you'd run two tracks. You know, you'd have a, a day job, so to speak, and, and learn a trade and start getting experience and then taking the credits and getting your degree. Uh, I've got an employee who does just that, and she does work seven days a week. Um, and she is just a, a, an inspiration to my husband and me because she works so darn hard, and she's so good at what she does. But really, I think she's the exception to the role. Um, I don't know how many students out there or how many people out there are willing to you know, work their day job and go to school and um, you know, keep up with their credits and their homework. Um, but that would be ideal. Um, I, I did. I worked um, during school. When I got my my degree, I had years of experience, and finding a job was never a problem for me. Um, but I don't, you know. Let's talk about this generation, this new generation coming up. Um, what are your thoughts regarding their mindset? Well, that just as I, I have to say right off the bat, I'm just an observer. I do live in a college town, and of course, um, Austin is a huge college town, so um, I know that there's uh, a great many um, students in, in the Austin area, and of course, that means competition for part-time jobs is, is really high. As, But I think we need to say that... Um, there's a tremendous number of really smart, really motivated young people out there. And as evidence, you can just look at the number of applications that are uh, tendered to the really the top universities and the number of people who get turned down, even though they have like really great um, SAT scores and, um, and really high uh, grade point averages. And, and and so we have like almost a surplus, if you will, of really bright, motivated um, kids, n- not all of whom can get into Yale, Stanford, um, et cetera. And um, that's a shame, really, because I think that there's many more qualified students than slots. Um, so beyond that uh, that sort of top 10%, shall we say, of, of really smart, highly motivated, um, academically successful students, I think there's, I'm, I'm hoping perhaps, but I do see evidence that there's a willingness to experiment in the younger generation, the generation that's either entering college or in college. And I, I, um, I think that's extremely hopeful because the old model's broken, so just sticking with it is, is going to guarantee failure, essentially, you know. And so, and it may just be on the fringes at this point, but um, that's how social change works, as we both know. The 
the Pareto principle tells us that once 4% of a population um, grasp an idea and start living it, they start influencing the majority. So that's that's my hopeful observation of the young generation. And I actually see those that apply to those, uh, you know, Ivy League schools who don't get accepted. I see that as a blessing um, because those schools, the tuition is fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year, and those are the ones walking away with this. Uh, well, not the only ones, but they're walking away with huge amounts of debt. And in our an economy today, um, with the way you know things are going, they may not be able to get jobs that's going to help pay their their student loans. Right, right. The the, the real creme de la creme universities um, like Harvard and so on, they they tend to support. They tend to provide almost 100% financial support to students um, from you know needy families or or lower income families. But we have to be realistic. I mean, these these are a few thousand. Uh, people in these in these elite universities, and we're talking about an economy, you know, with 320 million people and a workforce of 140 million. So, I think it's it's important um, to have sort of um, a, a priority list of A, B, C, D, or you know, at least three alternatives for every potential college student. Like, okay, go ahead and apply to the best school you can with the full financial aid thing, and if you get 95 percent of of your expenses paid for by grants, great, go, you know. But that's a, uh, that's a rarity. You it know? is it's, rare. Yeah, and so that's that's something that you can you can aim for that and shoot for that. But if it doesn't work, then you've got to have Plan B. And then if Plan B is not um, is too expensive, then you've got to have Plan C. So you've got the very rich who can write the check with no problem, and then you've got the very poor that these universities will assist with tuition. It's the middle class, which is basically my clients, right? Mm -hmm. Their child gets accepted into MIT or Harvard or Yale, and they will break their back and take on the debt just so Johnny can go to MIT. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones that are stuck in that you know, oh, how can I say no to my child, right, to go to the school? Um, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll take on the debt. I'll do whatever, right? Um, And they're the ones that are burdened with this tremendous amount of debt. And, you know, you write frequently about debt and often use the term debt surf, which I love. Um, it's It's what we've become, right? We've become the society of debt surfs. Um. And the answer is probably obvious, but why do you think debt is so destructive for our nation and and for households? I think we can start with the idea that we're substituting debt for working smarter, better, and more productively. And if we look at the economy, just for example, it's grown by, I don't know, 60% over the last 25 years. Well, our debt has grown by 400%. And our federal debt's grown by 600%. So instead of working smarter and more productively and, and, and really kind of bearing down and saying, what do we need to do to change, to adapt to the new realities? Instead, we just go borrow a bunch more money and we paper over all the problems uh, with, with, with this flood of borrowed money. And that's really what's happened in higher education. Instead of saying, well, why, why are colleges failing to produce uh, students who, you know, with critical thinking skills, um, how have colleges fallen out of alignment with the real economy? 
Instead, we just um, loan, you know, these poor kids like eighty, hundred thousand dollars and say, oh, we'll just get this degree and everything will be fine. We've, we've failed uh, completely and utterly, uh, but we've been able to do so because we've relied on debt to, to kind of paper over our inadequacies as a nation and as a house at the household level. What are your thoughts regarding the economy? Uh, positive thoughts or negative thoughts? <laughs> Realistic for today. Realistically, I think that we're in the midst of a revolution that's um, analogous to the Industrial Revolution of the 1800s. And we're in sort of at the beginning stages, and so it's hard for us to discern the the future, just as it was difficult for people coming off the farm in 1840 to foresee um, the industrialized economy of 1880. And so um, I think we're we're in a um, really fast-changing transitional period in, in the U.S. economy and in the global economy where all the benefits are going to people who are flexible, can learn fast, and, and are entrepreneurial. And um, th- those that are being left behind um, um, are, are those that aren't willing or, uh, or are unable to learn new stuff and um, are unwilling to enter the sort of entrepreneurial spirit where you try something, it doesn't work, you let go of it and move on. And you, you seek to collaborate with, you know, professional uh, people who are succeeding in the field that you want to enter and, and, and that kind of stuff. And so the sort of old model was you get a job and stick there for 30 or 40 years and then you get your you know, retirement and so on. That, that model's breaking down on, on multiple levels. But it doesn't mean that we have to, like, you know, give up and say, oh, our economy's going to crumble or, you know, our society has failed. It just means we have to grasp the fact that we're going to have to remain adaptable and flexible because the future is changing fast and and we can't really make um, decisions now that are going to be valid in in 10 years even. We we, we can only act on what we know now and anticipate that that change will perhaps even speed up. What about for the baby boomers? Baby boomers. Well, you know, this it ties into our discussion of higher education because I, many of my friends are in precisely the same boat that you described. They they're um, they they've worked hard. Um, they have college degrees themselves. Um, their bills uh, for 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 uh, you know uh, healthcare and and college far outstrip the amount of money they can put away for their own retirement. So they own almost nothing. And their own retirement is based on a 401k or, you know, from corporate America or Social Security. And so um, they're, they're in a bind. You know, they've got um, elderly parents to pay for and they've got um, kids to try to get into college. And, and they just, uh, it seems that many, many, many baby boomers are going to retire without the assets that they hoped for. Would would you um, would, does that align with what you're seeing from your client base? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And so, what I teach my clients to do is to build their savings on a foundation that is so rock solid that no matter what happens with Wall Street, no matter what happens with real estate, that that at least the savings, the amount of savings that they can put away, is not at risk. And once they've got that foundation in place, if they want to go out and, and gamble and risk money on Wall Street, then it's okay to do that. Um, but 
what I find, you know, when you when you put, um, you know, pencil to paper and start doing the math, you recognize, or my clients do, you know, they sh- really shouldn't be risking a whole lot of money uh, on a system, you know, like Wall Street, where somebody's pushing the buttons and we don't know who it is, right? Um, but it's certainly not there for the benefit of the investors or the consumers. Um, you you raised two points in that in that uh, commentary I think which which are worth emphasizing which is the yield on investment and uh, the other is opportunity cost and so whether we're talking about starting a company or retiring or um, trying to get a child into college and, and pay for it with cash we're talking about a, the yield on an investment and so when we were talking about higher education what we were really saying is the yield on that huge investment is declining and it's declining so fast we're not even sure what it is anymore because having a college degree certainly doesn't guarantee like a good job anymore and there's apparently no guarantee that that a child that goes through college is going to exit with um, critical thinking skills and i think the other point that you raise here is the opportunity cost that that's that's a, the term for what else could we have done with the money. Mm-hmm. And so if we risk money in in the Wall Street casino, then of course we're we're risking we're we're opening ourselves up to huge losses if if the various bubbles in bonds, stocks, and real estate pop. But we also it also goes back to your 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 um, comment about. What could we do with the money that we're now spending on college? What else could we do for um, our child with that money? What other business could we purchase <laughs> with the money that uh, we're, we're, we're investing in college with such a poor return? Mm-hmm. Now, you, what you mentioned, the yield, the opportunity cost, those are terms I use in my practice every single day in guiding my clients to think differently because, you know, here in America, we're brainwashed. I think in many, many ways we're programmed um, to think in terms of, you know, those sacred cows, the 401ks, Wall Street, college. That, that That's the only way, right, that we can have a bright future and all our dreams will come true. And, you know, I'm hopeful, and uh, what I've seen in my experience, and Charles, I think you are, you have too. More and more people are waking up um, to the fact, to the reality that um, it's not true, right? We've been lied to. Um, Charles, thank you so much for um, spending time with us today. Um, you're a, a great thinker. I love your website. Um, and uh, you've got a lot to offer in terms of, you know, alternative ways of looking at what's going on. Um, your website is of2minds.com. We will have a link to your website on Living Wealthy Radio. You've got a number of books that I think our listeners would love, um, could certainly benefit from reading. Any last thoughts or comments? I've really enjoyed our discussion on higher education, and I hope it um, opens uh, some some doors for, for listeners to alternatives to, as you say, the sacred cows. Fantastic. Well, listen, uh, God bless, and again, thank you so much for joining us today. Take thank care. Thank you, Teresa. 
presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The info being presented does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation and does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax advisor or legal counsel or other professional, and you should not use the information in place of a personal consultation regarding your specific situation or needs prior to taking any action based on this information. We believe the info provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness.